right into this morning's message. So there in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, I'm sorry, and of the angels, he says, right, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain." And they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And so, Father, we thank you, Jesus. We Pray now that you would speak to us, Lord, as we've read your word, as we've brought it out into the open. God, I pray that it would minister to the hearers. And God, we ask now as we're hearing your word, that also that you would speak through your word to us, Lord, that you would meet us as a church, that you would meet us as individuals, God. And God, I pray that you would empower me, that you would strengthen me, Lord, to do your will right now, Lord, to speak your truth to your people. And so, God, we thank you for this time. Lord, speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, hey, on the topic of angels is what we're looking at. Obviously, they are right in the text. Now, as we think about this, humanity for sure has had a long fascination with angels. And some of our earliest expressions of art and history all contain images and paintings and sculptures that had to do with angels and so forth. I mean, in fact, you know, the, uh, the school that I used to teach at back in San Antonio, their, their, uh, their mascot was Michael the Archangel. We had this really cool angel that they had for t-shirts and so forth. You know, it's just part of, I think, our culture in that way. Um, even in our modern Western world, right, in the in their early 90s, there was such a, a resurgence of, 
of this fascination or interest in angels. If you remember uh, Highway to Heaven, well, that was like more late 80s with Michael Landon, right? So he got rid of Little House in the Prairie and then became more, you know, culture intuitive, right? It's like Highway to Heaven, you know? And, and so we watched that. And then we had Touched by an Angel, which was a weird spin on angels. Uh, but again, you know, it was really good at pulling the heartstrings and so forth. But, you know, you're fascinated by that. Then you come, oh, well, what am I, you know, we come to movies. I mean, one of my favorites is It's a Wonderful Life, right? Clarence, like our favorite angel, right? Um, it's warped theology, but nonetheless, we love little Clarence, you know, and we're hoping that it's going to happen even though we know the ending already. Uh, we think of angels in the outfield, which is weird, right? Helping a kid win the pennant with the, was it the California Angels, right? Is that right? Yeah, in Anaheim. You know, and so you have all these kinds of things, but... When we think about it biblically, it's a whole different ballgame, no pun intended, right? It's a whole different thing, biblically speaking. Now, why is that? Well, you have to understand that the Hebrews, remember being written to Jewish Christians, right? Uh, angels were held in high regard. In fact, they were messengers. There was a school of thought that the words of God, and we'll touch that in a little bit, that the words of God that came to the people of God were in fact delivered by angels. And so there was this temptation, and you see that in different examples throughout Scripture. And in fact, there's at least 68 different passages in the Bible that deal with angels or encounters or messages from angels. And so they held them to this high regard. And as we go through Hebrews, you'll see over and over of how much better Jesus is, especially when we're talking about the word, the word coming through angels and Jesus being the living word of God. Right, so when we think about that, they are supernatural beings. Some of them good, some of them evil. Right, we have different names for them. Uh, one being morning star or cherubim, depending on the context of the scriptures. Right, the first time that we are we hear about angels happens in Genesis chapter three, verse twenty-four. You remember at the fall of mankind, God then assigns a couple of angels to guard the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that. They are supernatural, stronger than human beings. In fact, we have a really intense description that I think also kind of gives us some a little bit of insight into the Jewish mindset of why they would have been fascinated, why they would have been revered, and in some ways, in an unhealthy way, of reverence, right? So look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. Um, and here's this encounter we have with Daniel the prophet. And look what happens here. Daniel speaking, he says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Euphrates. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words. And while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, 
with my face to the ground, and suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. As you imagine, insert yourself, right, as Daniel the prophet, and I would have done the same thing. Fall to my face, fall to my knees, like what is going on here? Because they were something to behold. They were something that would have blown them away, trembling, fearful, because they are supernatural beings nonetheless, right? And so we also have other descriptions of them. Like in the book of Isaiah, we have these angels, these cherubim that they were called in that point, that would have these sets of wings covering their eyes and their feet and, and to lift them off the ground so that they would not touch the holy ground. Now, as we think about that, no wonder we, we think that all angels have wings and so forth. They're huge, they're big. But when we look at Hebrews... When we look at this chapter, we realize that, that angels are actually put in their proper light and they're put into the context of God's divine plan of salvation. We find out that, in fact, that Jesus, even though they, these angels were lifted high and, yes, they were superior beings, they were simply a part of God's redemptive plan because Jesus, as we'll see in a second, is built up as greater than these angels. And this morning, we're going to look at three things that highlight that one, angels are beings of service. They are beings of service. Two, Jesus is greater than angels. And then three, we have the great escape, which all this comes with a warning for us today as followers of Jesus. And so uh, let's look at the first one. Now, again, we're probably going to pop around a little bit, right, because there's a whole lot here on angels, but uh, I think it's good to look at them from the big picture. So maybe for some, that is a new thing, that angels are servants. Again, it goes against kind of what our Western culture has built them up to be, right? They've become synonymous, right? It's like it's, we don't think much of Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life because we think of them in, in that Christmas context, right? And we see that in the nativity story of them singing, right, before the shepherds and so forth. But in this perspective, we realize that they are not only beings of service, but I would say, and you'll see in a second, that they're actually, actually fellow servants, fellow servants of God. Look real quickly. You can turn there. I think I have it up here as well. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 7 and 9, we see another encounter of angels, this time with John, right, the revelator. So this is what he says here in Revelation 22, 7. Behold... I am coming quickly, Jesus speaking. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, right? This is the end of God, of God giving uh, John, the apostle, the book of Revelation. And then right in that moment, it says that John saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me this thing. So he's down and he's ready to worship. But then look what the angel says to him. See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. It's easy in this kind of context in this life to maybe lift these angels up, or especially in that Jewish mindset, up to lift them up in a, in a sense of a, a source of worship. 
But I love, there's three little mini things that we can take from this verse that one, the angels say, hey, don't worship us, right? Don't, don't look to them in that way, right? We are fellow servants. And what do they do? They point us to God. I mean, think about that for one second as, as we think about the church in this context today, gathered this morning, we're singing, we're worshiping. But one day in the heavenly places, in the throne room of God, we we will be along with the angels worshiping God as well. I mean, that was the command. Worship God. Don't do that. Don't look to these inferior things. Don't look to us, right, as though we were something. But worship God. Angels don't, I know it's going to be a sad one for some of you, angels don't earn their wings. Sorry, Clarence. It didn't happen. It's not biblical, right? And again, this is kind of a hard one. Uh, Again, against popular opinion, right? Our loved ones, when they pass on, they don't become angels. Actually, if that were true, guys, it would actually take away from God's plan of redemption for mankind. For us to become angels puts us in a place. You know what really struck me about that and how the angels, as if you look at Isaiah and the throne room of God, you have this picture of God and his holiness, but then the angels are not allowed to touch the ground in the presence of God. But then, if you remember, kind of alluding back to what we talked about last week, Moses and the calling of the burning bush, what did God do? What did God say to Moses there? Take off your shoes, for you're standing on holy ground. For humanity, it's okay to stand on holy ground. For the angels, hey, you need to be off the ground. So think about that for a second. They're fellow servants all calling us to point to worship. And here's four many things that we see in the scriptures about these angels and the fact that they are beings of service, right? Beings of service because in their part, they point to something bigger and greater and better, okay? And it actually builds. The first thing we see, right, is you look there in verse 6, right? We're kind of tying in with verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, right? But instead, and I will, you know, you, you go on there, but then look what happens in verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. The first thing we see about angels here in this section is that they are called to worship God. Their rank, their standing is one in subjection to God, right? They stand as someone who is lower in rank and they're called to worship just as we are called to worship God. Not them, but again, I want us to get in that mindset that they come alongside, we are alongside with them as created beings, worship the one who created us, right? And so they are called to worship God. Now, something is a side note. As we go through these like 15, 16 verses here, that all this, all these are rooted in Old Testament Psalms, in the Psalms, right? It's the writer bringing out these Psalms to show us the place of angels, but then also to show us how much greater and better is Jesus. How we can look to Jesus and all these things. Uh, Look at the next one, verse 7, right? And of the angels, he says, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Once again, you see that there is ownership. They belong to God. They are God's servants. They serve at the pleasure 
of God. As one who comes in and worships. Now, this is kind of cool. Um, maybe not. We made this connection last night as we were talking about, like, Angel of the Winds Casino. Not promoting the casino here, okay? But it was interesting to me that they get that phrasing because the word here, angel wings, actually the word wings translates to wind. And it's the idea that these angels ride on the wind, that they're fast, that they go, they flow, but they are constantly on the move, that the wind is kind of at their back. And you see that, right? Every time you, you hear a jet or a car goes by, you feel that wind like just coming by you. Um, this past week, I got a little dose of reality being on the mainland. Um, we, were in, we were out of state Nevada, and I was walking to this breakfast place where I was meeting some other pastors just on the main road there. And I'm just walking on the sidewalk, Friday Harbor mentality, and then a car just, boom, just passes by going 60 miles an hour. And I'm like, I'm like two feet away from this car and multiple cars. I forgot what it's like to be on the mainland. I'm <laughs> walking the sidewalk, I guess. I don't know. But it was just this sense of this rushing wind. And that's the picture that God is painting, that these angels are constantly on the move, right? That their wind, that their wings bring this wind. It's a sense of going. They're constantly going to, constantly going fro in service, but not just in service, but look, they are ministers of a flame of fire. It's a very poetic saying that there is a burning fire of devotion that they have for God. Right? But again, once again, in subject to the Lord. Look at the next thing. They are spirit beings that minister. Yes, of course, they are different, but they are spirit beings, right? Sent on a holy mission. Look at, as I said, verse 14, right? The writer says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Again, the idea is that they are spirit beings, right? They're definitely, there's no doubt about it, that they live outside of this time and space that we have. And, and the, you know, often as I, because I kind of like sci-fi-ish stuff, I like to often think of what that would look if somehow the outside universe were to come all of a sudden become visible to our mind's eye, it would probably scare us, right? And we probably would fall down like, ah, oh, what's going on here? But they are in that way spirit beings. And here's the cool thing. They are constantly being set. The word there, that it says, are they not all ministering spirits being sent forth? The, 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 the idea or the meaning behind that is that they were sent in the past. They are sent in the present. And they're continually being sent in the future. Serving, right? All with this, this part of pointing to Jesus. Of serving Jesus. As we, as humanity, would not look to angels or created things or other beings, but look to one who is greater, who is Jesus, right? Look at the next thing in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, right? The angels bring God's word. This, this, maybe for you it won't, but for me it actually blew me away. In, in chapter 2, verse 2, look what it says, or verse 1, it says, Therefore, right, and, and thinking about it, we'll go back and look at the big picture again. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression disobedience received a just reward. I mean, we'll, we'll go with that context at the end. That's going to be point three. But look at that phrasing. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, what is he talking about? The word spoken through the angels proves steadfast. Actually, Moses 
in Deuteronomy chapter 33, look there real quick, he actually appeals back the veil and gives us a little insight uh, to the Jewish mindset or the Jewish understanding of how uh, the commandments of God came about. And I'm going to look there in Deuteronomy. Are you guys there yet? No one's there yet? Okay. I lost it. Deuteronomy chapter 33. I'm going to try to beat you on my iPad. Okay. I'm there to beat you guys. <laughs> Verse 2. And look what happens here, right? This is um, Moses speaking and looking back at the time that God gave him the commandments. The Ten Commandments, and it's something that always kind of made me think about, you know, and wrestle with the idea that we know that God in His glory, man cannot stand in His glory and hear and see God, lest it be just too much. Now, there is a time when God did speak to Moses, but He just showed him the hind part of Him. There are times that God in a midst or in a vision would speak face to face to Moses. We saw that, but then this is crazy. Look what it says there in Deuteronomy 33 verse 2. It says, Moses speaking, the Lord came from Mount Sinai, right? That's where the Ten Commandments happened and the commandments of God. And dawned upon us from Mount Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and came from Meribah Kadesh with flaming fire at his right hand. Right? With, with, I'm sorry, with flaming fire at his right hand. What am I doing? This, this is where I'm, I'm going to bag on the, end, the, the New Living Translation here. Because I read from the New Living Translation and it totally takes away from what... Uh, as actually said here. So I'm going to try this again. Okay, here we go. This is way better. New King James Version. And he said, The Lord came from Mount Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of saints. The wording for ten thousands of saints in this context is speaking of angels, not just saints in the sense of we as people, but the translation is speaking of angelic beings, right? And he came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand and came a fiery law for them. In other words, the, the Jewish mindset, the understanding is that God, this is also developed in Acts chapter 7, where Paul, uh, uh, I'm sorry, where, where it's Peter who lets us know that it was the angels who spoke these words to Moses as they received the commandments. That was one of the reasons why they were elevated so high, why the angels were put on such a pedestal, because they saw them as direct messengers as one who delivered, the idea there is like a legal term, like when you get a, a ticket or you get a, you know, something in the letter or you, you get a, a, you know, you serve from a court of law, right? The idea is that the angels were messengers who delivered the word of God. And in that, the people had to respond and either they had to choose to obey God's word or run from God's word. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, we know what happens every time the children of Israel would disobey God's word, right? There was consequences and so forth. And so they would see that as the angels bringing his word as something to be admired, something they would hold on, hold on to, something that they would be revered for. But now the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, you guys are basically getting it wrong. They, they were a part of the plan of God. They were used as fellow servants, but they too worshiped God as fellow servants. They too were sent to minister to the Lord all the while pointing to the rescuer. Why? Because Jesus is greater than the angels. And now let's look at this. 
Why? Well, well, as we go back backwards, once again, we look at some of the key things that are spoken about Jesus. The very one who the angels spoke about. The very one who was actually even before the commandments came from Moses. Now, why would we say that when we think about that? Well, remember, what does John 1.1 say? Anyone? You can shout it out right now. John 1.1. What? Yeah. Jesus was in the beginning. And as God spoke the world into creation, right there he dwelt, you know, in the darkness of the land and started breathing life into this world. And so here is Jesus. It's almost like, like it's like to, the, to these followers of Jesus, let's make the connection. That although the angels are amazing and they're awesome, they were still messengers because look at what God has said about his son, right? And here's some, just some many things that we'll look at throughout this to show the beauty and the superiority of who Jesus is, right? So first thing we see, verse 4 and 5, right? It says that Jesus gave or has a better, right? He's better than the angels. Why? Because he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name they than they, right? And look at this. For to which of the angels did he ever say? Which angel did, did God ever say this to? None. But he said it to Jesus. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Right? You are the son of God. Right? You are the son who then inherits all the wealth of the father. Right? You think about that in the sense of God becoming human flesh and being born through the Virgin Mary, right? And then as he became the Son of God, as he is the Son of God, right? He comes as God in human flesh, right? Inheriting, speaking on behalf of, speaking for God. Why? Because he is God. He is the Son of God. And you see that he is better than God, born of God, sent by God, resurrected from the dead. He then becomes the heir of all creation, the firstborn of all the, of, of, of all the dead, right? So the first thing we see, he is the son of God. Look at the second thing. He is the anointed king. Look at chapter, uh, verse 8 and 9 of that chapter, right? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. See, the, even like right there, you have to understand how that in that Jewish culture, they would have screamed, blasphemy during that point to hear that that God would call Jesus his son God right but he is greater he is God in fact right he is the appointed anointed king look verse 8 and 9 right your throne O God is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, more than the things that have gone, more than the beings of the celestial world, right? You have been appointed king, anointed king. How, how would they anoint the kings in those days, right? Right, one great example we have is when God instituted Israel's second king. What did he do? He brought David, this ruddy little guy, to the forefront, right? After going through all the big buff guys, tall guys like me, right? Um, I'm not buff. By name. My stomach's buff, but I'm not buff. <laughs> um, and, and so they brought King David, right, who would become king. And what did they do? They anointed him. 
with oil. And the idea is that the oil dripped over his head and there was this sense of celebration and joy. And then he became king. And then as he progressed, as he, as he lived for God, as he fought for God, as he ruled for God, right, then the people would, would enjoy that, that, that blessing of a king who is, is establishing himself as king as time would go on. But what did our Jesus do? Our Jesus came, right, and humbled himself and lived among us and healed with signs and miracles and then submitted himself to death, submitted himself to the will of the Father to be handed over to mankind to brutally, right, destroy him. But then the son, the heir, right, he conquered death. Right, he rose from the death, showing that death could not hold him. That in fact, with boldness, the writer of Hebrews could say, right, uh, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then, because of the resurrection, was anointed the king. See, it's backwards. The earthly king gets anointed, and then he tries to prove himself as king. Our king humbled himself, and then became anointed as the king of kings and lord of lords. Right, so he's anointed king, and he rules as a as this benevolent ruler. And the good news for us is that this king is so much better than the angels. Why? Because his kingdom lasts forever. For I mean, we, we, we don't think in, in, in kingdoms per se, right? Because we, we supposedly live in a democratic society, right? And so we don't think in those terms, but they thought in those terms. They thought of kingly rules and so forth. And so they knew and they recognized that the kingdoms rose and then they fell. But our king that begins here on earth, I mean, if anything, if, 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 if anything you could take away from our time in the Gospel of Matthew is that the kingdom of God is now. Is that God wants to rule here on earth through his church. And he wants to be benevolent to the people of God, to the followers of Jesus here on earth. And not only does it start here, but it continues on into eternity, right? Because look what he says there in these verses, right? In 10 and 12, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. We talked about it in the John 1. He was there in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Still speaking, remember, to the Son. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. And there is a sense that he is greater than the message that came through the angels. His message, his being, his anointing completes the picture. Completes the picture of who Jesus is. Completes the picture of God bringing salvation to humanity. And so we realize once again that the angels were simply servants because Jesus, and hopefully in your mind, he keeps getting better and better and better in our minds, right? As we look to this Jesus who is also a conquering Jesus. Look what happens there in verse 13. Right? He is the conqueror. But to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Right? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The idea there is, right, that he sits at the right hand of God's authority. That he wields authority as a king with the same authority that God himself has, right? Because he is God. 
and he has conquered death. This picture, you know, this is a really kind of, especially if you like, like movies, I don't know, like Braveheart and stuff like that, right? The idea here is that to make your enemies your footstool is that in those days, whether it be the king or the warriors, as they would come in and conquer a town and just by way of showing that you are submissive to me, like their enemies, you know, they would have them on the ground and they would step like on their necks and just stand there with their foot on their necks. You know, it's kind of like when you're little puppies, right? You're a little puppy, right? They know who the boss is because they come at your feet and they go up in their bellies and they do this and they're like submitting to you. They, as a conquering king, would step on their necks. And the idea here is that Jesus has conquered our enemies. Jesus has conquered our greatest enemy, death. And he's made him to stand, made him to, to, to bow before him. How did he do that? Because once again, we look to the resurrection. As the enemy of our souls brought Jesus to death, Jesus would say, no, that enemy is going to sit under me. Because I'm going to come back. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to come back to life, right? right? He is the sun king who conquered the greatest enemy of all, death, right? And so we see these comparisons of, yeah, the angels are something, but Jesus is greater and better. And now for us, as followers of Jesus, then what it does is it demands a response for us. But we have the great escape. Look what happens in verse 1 through 4. I'll read it again one more time as we're almost getting ready to close, right? He says there in verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So then there becomes a warning, one of many warnings to followers of Jesus, to to the followers here, these Jewish believers, but to us today as well, we can take these things, that it's a call that as we look at how high and how great and mighty is Jesus, and if we as followers, excuse me, as we as followers, we, we weigh these things, and then we weigh them in the light of who we are, that then we, we take these things and we should, Jesus should be on this pedestal of worship. Right? There are many things that we should not worship. We shouldn't worship angels, obviously. I think that has been made clear here. But there's other things in our lives that, that should not take the place that Jesus takes. Because we can say this about angels. To which of any of the angels did God ever say this to? Of what things did God ever say that, hey, let this thing, let this person take a place in your heart of worship? No, here, for us, as a church, as followers of Jesus, look at and glance, and as I said at the intro to Hebrews last week, look at these things and stand in awe of who Jesus is and what he has done on, on, on our behalf. He says, look, you must give earnest heed. You should really take into account the things that have just been said, as we were saying. And to be careful, lest we drift away. There's a warning here, and this is where maybe we can get that word, that term, backsliding. There's a warning for us. 
that we're constantly putting these things before us about who Jesus is. Because it's easy to drift. You know, when we backslide, if you kind of use that analogy of maybe going on across a, a, a body of water, I remember the very first time a buddy of mine, he was, he was training me to run. It was just like a little, I don't know, it was a 14, 15-foot sea sport, you know, and know anything about boats. And he's trying to make it very, like, uh, plain and simple for me. And we were going across John's Pass. And he saw, here's what you need to do. He said, see the front or at the bow, you have that rail in the middle there. See that rail? Line that rail up with that house on the island way off in the distance. I mean, he's just really trying to make it simple. And he said, just keep the house to the left side of that rail. And so I was like, okay, you know, I'm doing this. I'm sweating and stuff. Like, you know, this is his boat. And, but it was just a great picture that as we follow Jesus, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on these things. Ever keep them on our forefront. Why? Because if you don't, you drift. And as you guys know, in these waters, if you drift, it's really easy to what? To hit rocks. One time I went right into a bed of kelp and he had to walk me through. Okay, now go backwards. And I was like, oh, I was even sweating even more now, <laughs> like, you know. But the idea is you don't know what's underneath and what we can get caught up on. And then that's actually the word picture that's used of this slow drift. Not like, okay, I'm going this way. And I'm just going to make a right turn. It just, it never happens that way when we're following Jesus. It's that we think we're okay. It's like every now and then we glance to here, we glance around, and we don't realize that slowly, we're slowly starting to drift. And it's a warning for us. It's a call for us as it was a warning to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because why? If the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, if the angels and what they said and what they brought to Moses and the commandments and all these things really had some value... And those things that came through angels uh, had value and there was consequences for not obeying the things they gave us from God. How much more so should we pay attention to the fulfillment, to the things that the angels had always been pointing to all along, to Jesus, right? Who has a better name than they are, who has a more excellent name than they and who also not just backed it up with his words, but as we saw, enabled it, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, justified it with his gifts and, this, and, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and, and, and the miracles, the resurrection of Lazarus. Think of all these things that John says, man, there's so much more, but I suppose that all the books of the, Bible, of the libraries could not contain the things that Jesus did. Keep Jesus at the forefront, Right? So by name and inheritance, Jesus is greater than the angels. They are messengers of servants, heralds of the gospel in that reminding us that Jesus is greater than any heavenly celestial figure. And again, yet the message they bring, again, once again, points us to the ultimate message, that he is superior. And so I would just say to you, church, this morning, man, let Jesus remain superior in your life. Let Jesus become better than everything. Give him the place that he deserves. Why? Because Jesus took the low place. That he might come and humble himself and submit himself to the one. And we'll see that next week that he is better than the angels, but he also made himself lower than the angels. And that he humbled himself and took on the form of, a, of the man, of humanity, in our place, so that we would have the great escape to come to the resurrected Jesus.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Jesus. We thank you for these things that are said.